You're listening to Go Dig a Hole. This is your host, Christopher Sims. This show is your archaeology toolkit, where I'll bring you resources to kickstart your career in archaeology. If you're still in school, thinking about going back, just getting started, or want to take the next step, Go Dig a Hole has you covered. All right, now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I'm your host, Chris Sims. On today's show, I'm joined once again by Colin Omolinowski, and we're going to explore a topic that he suggested a couple months ago, and we've been chatting about it. We're going to explore where archaeology belongs, so we'll be trying to locate archaeology's place. So we explore the origins of archaeology, and we talk about the kinds of thinking that formed archaeology in the past and the changes that happen to make it what it is now, and we take a look ahead in the future. Before I get into the episode, there's a couple announcements. I've been experiencing some serious issues with my internet. Thank you, Comcast. And um, <clears throat> there's a little bit of a, a lag, so I've tried to edit it as best I can to get rid of the lag, but uh, just bear with me on this one. I'm working to fix it. Also, uh, in light of uh, Hurricane Harvey. I'll be donating uh, the next two months of uh, the Patreon support to uh, Hurricane Relief. Uh, so thank you for all my Patreon subscribers. If you want to support the Go Dig a Hole podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. If you want to support the hurricane, please do some research and figure out uh, hurricane relief efforts that you're most comfortable with. There are a lot of options, but um, you know, some, some options are better than others. So you had written an email to me with some really good ideas. Um, and that was, I don't know, uh, a couple months ago now. Uh, and we both ended up having to get, uh, pulled away for summer field work and whatnot. But, um, your, your question was basically where is archeology's span place? Um, is it within anthropology is it within history uh or is it within its own kind of thing and and uh, you had pointed out that there's differences in the way it's treated in the united states and in the uk and even within the united states um you know there's a few schools who are, are treating it different ways as well um and that's a really interesting topics. So thanks thanks for suggesting that and I'm I'm really happy to have you back on the show. And as as we practice archaeology now in the year 2017, it's such an interdisciplinary field that pulls from, you know, so many different traditions and and methods and technologies. And the question itself of like where does archaeology belong <clears throat> was one that uh when I was an undergrad, I remembered you know, talking through the debate and even in grad school. And that wasn't so long ago. And uh, I felt like I still kind of didn't have a satisfactory answer or hadn't really made up my own mind about it. And it was interesting timing. Just um, I don't know if it's just kind of like where I am in in life right now. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel like... Uh, I have a better idea of where its place is and we can kind of come around to that so that nobody gets off easy with a 
too long didn't listen. Yeah, through my limited experience, I've seen that archaeology falls into this gray area where people are competing to be in either hard science or soft science, the humanities, and there's no good way out identifying where its places then I think to say it's smack dab in the middle of it all. But I guess if we had to, I don't see, that's the thing. I don't know. Um, if like, if I had to put it down then I'm not sure. So right now, University of Pennsylvania for those listening and the university classifies archeology span courses under the humanities department. And it's within the realm of art history, classical studies, religious studies, and that's all in one building. And it's specifically within this art history and archeology span program. So here, Michigan and other big schools, they are buying it in the U.S. as this humanities base. But obviously it does draw from the hard sciences. Right. That's interesting, too. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got schools like UC Davis that have archaeology um, situated within almost more of an earth sciences thing. So I guess that's on the other end of the spectrum where it's it's grouped in with the harder sciences. Um, and then they have you know, the, the rest of anthropology is over in the humanities. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And, uh, I guess we can explore some of the, the reasons why that the, the, there are differences in how archeology span is grouped. Um, and so, uh, I guess a good starting point would be to kind of do a, a quick, uh, time travel through archaeology's intellectual history. <laughs> so as we were trading some notes about this show, I I had said that, uh, you know, here we are in 2017 and archaeologists are finding themselves at the intersection of social justice issues, uh, climate change, indigenous rights, water rights, urban planning, historical preservation, and all sorts of other socio-political issues. And I've said this on social media and in other places, but archaeology is inherently political, and science is inherently political, and simply existing in society is, inher is inherently political. But archaeology wasn't always that way, and its beginnings were kind of on... The, they were actually quite the opposite. And so uh, it started off as kind of a tool for colonialism and a vehicle for legitimizing oppression which is an uncomfortable place to be as an archaeologist now. It's it's kind of difficult to look back at that, but I think it's important to acknowledge that and move forward. And I think that there's a lot of parallels to the sociopolitical issues that we're facing as a broader society, not just as archaeologists. And so if we can kind of look back at the intellectual tradition of, of where ideas and methods and schools of thought are coming from, then we can really grapple with them and, and work them from the inside out and, and kind of learn their strengths and weaknesses and really, you know, kind of work around it. And so archaeology starting point in the, you know, as it, as it really came into its own as a discipline in the late 1800s, it was focused on antiquities and was really partnered along with colonialism, imperialism. And, uh, and so you had these people who tended to be old, rich white guys 
who were following along with various <laughs> yeah. military or kind of uh, land developer and venture capitalist missions all over the global south who you know came along and uh, i forget who said it but i remembered reading early on uh, or i remembered reading about archaeology's early on traditions and, and said that archaeology is a hobby for the idle elite and it, you can kind of see that in the the kinds of outcomes of the studies that were being done and so um you know there in terms of the biological anthropology and and the kinds of things that were coming out of that aspect of archaeology you get phrenology and race science and you're looking at you know you had the myth of the noble savage was being perpetuated whenever north american uh you know uh, Native Americans were being studied and you know you had all these crazy ideas like the lost tribe of Israel was coming out of that because there's no way that you know Native Americans or you know the the ancient Egyptians or the ancient Maya could have devised these civilizations on their own that it must have had some kind of you know, influence from a superior race or whatever. <laughs> and so these are these debunked frameworks. They were debunked a long, long time ago, like well over a hundred years ago, but we're seeing a major resurgence in these frames of thought. And I think that that's a lasting testament to the impact that archeological research has on society and to the cultural lag behind academia that ends up happening being that these ideas are being perpetuated that are like 200 years old and they're just like they don't hold muster to any sort of intellectual rigor at all but because of the extremely poor public engagement of archaeologists you know that's just my opinion there that that archaeology wasn't focused on public engagement up until you know the last few decades and i think that that did a lot of damage to have you know, almost a century of archaeological research just kind of hold off away. And all of these ideas that have long since been debunked are sitting in academia. And when people from the general public find them, they're treated with intellectual merit, which they absolutely don't deserve. And so that also speaks to the intellectual laziness of the people who latch on to these ideas. You know, you get these these people who are believers in in race science and and phrenology and stuff like that, who you know end up going to these quote unquote free speech rallies around the country, and if they actually had to debate with any intellectual merit and defend their ideas, they wouldn't be able to do it because their ideas have been attacked and critiqued and dissected inside and out for the last century and academia has long since moved on like that it's done it's over with and so as we think of these ideas now as, as like garbage ideas they were they were really on vogue in the late 1800s and so you know like i was mentioning earlier uh, these idle elite would go around and and use these ideas to exploit imperialist land grabs and legitimize racism and stuff like that and that was just part of what that was part of what validated their profession at the time. And so that's one of those things that, you know, is very difficult to grapple with now. And it's one of those things, though, that 
Um, throughout the 20th century, critical social theory shaped a lot of massive shifts in archaeological method and thought. And so this was the critical social theory that was stemming from, you know, questioning capitalism. It was questioning um, uh, white supremacy and hegemony and was responsible for the civil rights movement. Um, and so you know, like you had mentioned early on, archaeology borrows from a lot of things. And so the the Marxist and feminist thought that was challenging status quo in the, you know, middle part of the, the 1900s was questioning the role of social hierarchy and accommodating different voices. And so those kinds of things, while they were being applied more broadly in the rest of society, were being applied to archaeological studies. And that was a really cool thing to to see change for archaeology, where you started to think, oh, well, let's look at the common people. Let's let's look at other perspectives and stuff like that. And so you start moving away from the ooh-ah archaeology to more of the, um, you know, more of the individual, more of the, the common person. Um, and then also you have, you know, to look uh, at, history uh you have you know with history accommodates a lot more of like uh literary critique and like art critique and stuff and so you get the development of postmodernism in the 1900s that challenges traditional viewpoints and uh, traditional expression and then you get that finding its way into archaeology and so that's that's kind of like how thought changed for archaeology in a nutshell and i mean that's as nutshell as i can make it and that was kind of a long rant no that was that was great <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it kind of helps us understand like archaeology at, as history uh and so like history has undergone a lot of similar changes like i had mentioned uh and and so history you know I, i'm not as familiar with you know the the deeper details of the uh how the discipline has evolved over time but i know that you know it started off as kind of that that old adage history is written by the victors and and it's also written by the elite and those in power and stuff like that and so that was true for a long time but history as academia as a discipline has also adopted critical social theory and it's been using uh you know, the different theoretical viewpoints as explanatory vehicles. Uh, and so, you know, you're looking at different media, different sources of information um, and trying to accommodate multivocality and really adding a lot of complexity to the story of history. Uh, and so it makes sense that archaeology would be grouped in to history when that is the approach um, to, you know, to kind of add complexity to the story. And then you have, you know, archaeology as anthropology, uh, you know, is part of the four field approach of anthropology uh, that involves cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, linguistics, and of course, archaeology. Um, and that's kind of the standard for the United States as it's practiced. And as I understand it, um, there are other parts of the world where that's quite uh, common, too. Um but, you know, it varies from place to place. Uh, and it just makes sense because those are the areas that archaeology tends to rely on 
the most for its sources of information. Um, so like looking at skeletons and past landscapes and how, how cultures, you know, develop and interact and even how language uh, works to make all of that happen. Um, it just makes sense that archaeology would sit in the rest of anthropology when those are the kinds of things. But like you had said, Colin, earlier on, like it borrows from so much more. And so archaeology on its own, um, I think it might be an answer to critics of archaeology being lumped in with humanities, uh, the people who argue that it's more of a hard science and that it draws more heavily from interdisciplinary approaches found in like earth sciences and like engineering. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I guess to, to go back to the original question, like what is archaeology's place? Uh, I would say it, it depends on what you're trying to do with it. And it depends on, who you're working with. And so places like Penn that have, um, you know, Penn is one of the, one of the established like top schools for archeology, span but um, the people who really formed it into that program um, drew from the intellectual traditions of, you know, history and art and studying the classics. And um, so it would make sense that it would be, um, aligned more with the humanities rather than with the hard sciences and same with like UC Davis on the other end of the spectrum where where you have um, evolutionary approaches really dominating the kinds of research that are coming out of that school uh, it just kind of makes sense that the people involved like uh, Bruce Winterhalder and, and Doug Kennett and all that were were involved over there um, so um, yeah so archaeology on its own uh, you know, it, I, I guess it makes sense to have it open for interdisciplinary approaches. I don't really know. Um, I guess it just kind of varies school by school, but the way I see archaeology now is archaeology is everything. And if it involved human interaction with something, then archaeology can provide a mode of studying it and explaining it. And I've seen some really cool, cool examples of that kind of mindset where you've got archaeo gaming now you, um there's a big group of people in the uk that are really pushing archaeo gaming which is just studying the the archaeology of video games and uh you know you've got like uh patrick mcgovern uh who's really looking into uh the nitty-gritty of beer uh and you know you can even taste the product of that with the dogfish head uh ancient ale series uh, and then you've got, you know, like the archaeology of road trips and music festivals and, and really like anything you, you can think of. And it doesn't even have to be old. And there's there's a great book uh, called Garbology. No, no, no. It's called Rubbish. <laughs> but it's the study of Garbology. And it was written by <laughs> uh, Bill Rathjee, who uh, passed away. But, uh, you know, during the the, you know, later decades of his career, he studied contemporary waste production and disposal to look at, uh, to really test how archaeological principles and, and theories uh, stack up in, in real life practice. And there were some amazing conclusions that came from that work that are 
totally relevant to you know living breathing society now uh one is that people self-report very differently than the material culture would suggest so like he coupled uh in his garbage study he he went around and gave surveys to people and he got he got permission from you know the citizens and from the city uh i believe it was in tucson arizona uh, for a long, long time, he got permission to collect their garbage and study it. And so he kind of treated it like an excavation, but it was like by household and by week. And so he was able to look at like seasonality responses to, uh, you know, global consumerist trends, stuff like that. But he also coupled it with a, a self-reported survey. And so people were reporting you know, like, uh, I don't drink that much beer. And then like, he would look through their, their ways and he would find, uh, actually you do, you, you drink a good bit of beer, um, and stuff like that. And it was, it was pretty neat to see that. But one of the things in terms of like, uh, sustainability and climate change and, and waste reduction that he said is that the shocking thing that some people might not find intuitive is that paper seems to be the biggest culprit of taking up space and material in a landfill and oh, really uh even with recycling programs in place paper tended to be the the thing that made it through into landfills and um so that really changes things in terms of like plastic he said that plastic isn't really that much of a concern um and i think maybe he was oversimplifying it when he said that um but uh, he said that plastic can at least be repurposed and like kind of mined um, from a landfill because it doesn't decompose. But that was one of the other shocking conclusions is that nothing decomposes in a landfill. So he said uh, that bio, bio, biodegradable products are a bigger myth than Santa Claus in the United States. And that you know, like you're buying, you're buying these products like from the store who that are packaged in biodegradable, you know, packaging, uh, but they're not biodegrading because you're not putting it in a compost heap. You're you're just putting it in a hermetically sealed landfill, and you know nothing is happening to it. Yeah, um, it's it's really interesting in regard to that. Um, going on the of the garbage discussion, I met this gentleman who. Worked in demo, works in demolition and repurposing. We got to talking, and he asked what I did, and it's like, oh, I'm in, ar- in archaeology, and I was like, oh, oh what do you, you do? This like junk collector, but yet not. Um, <laughs> so he goes into houses and will and condemn <laughs> house buildings, and they're set to be demolished, but he takes the good stuff. And he even petitioned one of the local cities around Cleveland go through the garbage dump, take all the metal, recycle it, get all that money, and he would do other services like that. So, so if this guy's thinking forward like that, then there's definitely a way we can reutilize the materials that we're throwing out. But if I had if I hadn't told him that I was interested in like quote unquote like modern junk, <laughs> then we may have never gotten to this. Um, but we're coming at the issue from the same angle of whereas like you and I you and I had studied studied 
the uh, past. Um, he's a collector of contemporary, the, the contemporary. That's super cool. And I, I think that it, it's interesting that archaeology isn't being uh, applied more to current resource use because, you know, our in, you know, many approaches of, of archaeology, you're looking at human resource use and, you know, the, the kinds of ways that um, cultures can efficiently use their resources uh, without, you know, depleting them. And, you know, if you look at collapsed civilizations and stuff like that, one of the main culprits uh, tends to be uh, poor human environment interaction, uh, which, you know, it has kind of a cascading effect with sociopolitical tensions and, and warfare and resource scarcity and stuff like that. And we're kind of looking at the same thing now, um, but I don't really know that uh, a whole lot is being done to use archaeological thought to really you know, get in there and like force policy and stuff like that. Um, it seems like the policymakers are are quite detached from those kinds of concerns. So I don't know. It's it's a big problem, um, but that's one of the strengths that uh, anthropology and, and archaeology has is uh, the ability to look at very complex human problems. Yeah, we approach just one city's garbage disposal as an exemplar from possibly the country and that and keep going and look through and say, this is what we're finding. And oh, wait, go back to Maya, Roman uh, civilizations. And th we're finding that, as what you said, that there's collapse uh, is in part due to environmental degradation and just lack of like, where do we put this, where we put our, um, and it does have an effect on the populace. Yeah, exactly. Well, so we've talked a good bit about where archaeology's place is. Um, I don't know. What What do you think? Uh, after talking it out, where would you say its place is? Ooh, I still think it's it, it's in the middle of that race. It really, it really is, and I think that's one of the problems of defining it. Is so if the example of like studying Roman archaeology um, or just any classical archaeology therein you have, have the thought of like deep time to someone and even people who begin to study geology that's another that's a whole nother ball game yeah. uh, even deeper time <laughs> but just conveying that um this object in that you're looking at was created thousands of years ago and it had all these environmental factors it had these uh, uh per factors upon the populist, um, the social, political, um, like everything is happening all at once. And you can look at that through an object. Um, one of the books I'm reading right now is uh, Mary Beard's SPQR. And she was talking about the, the hotly contested debate of the Cicero versus Catiline, um, where Catiline was supposedly trying to overthrow the Roman. Um, Cicero gives this a speech lambasting him and Catiline's eventually killed exiled out of the city and so she takes a deeper look at um, using archaeological evidence and specifically looking at uh, the mint coin mints and there was a lack of coinage around the time of 
the, the Cicero-Catiline debate, and they're, she's attributing that to some sort of uh, economic uh, problem that occurred. And it goes to show that, I mean, Catiline is, or his story is he's revolting against the city um, problems, but if he's having money problems, other people in the empire are having money problems, especially in Rome. And if there's a general lack of coin, a general lack of coin shortage or monetary supply, um, then that's affecting more than just one historical figure. That's these people who we don't even have the records for. So it really takes something as so small as a coin, uh, a bigger picture. And so, and so, you know, we have the effects of, I don't know where I'm going. You can just delete the rest. <laughs> um, no, I, I think, I think that's, he gets a point. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's fascinating to look at uh, kind of an, an economic bubble or like a, you know, like maybe an inflation issue uh, in the past. And, and it's like, it's like you said, it's, it's well documented or somewhat documented for uh, the elites. But what about all the other people? Like, mm -hmm. what was their experience like on the ground, like every day? What was their daily life like dealing with coin shortage? Like, you know, how do they exchange material goods? Like, did it resort to a barter system? You know, did it stress centralized authority? Yeah. Did people kind of break off into like local economies and stuff like that? Because that's that's the kind of thing that we're looking at now with these tensions over centralized authority and kind of the rise of, of, um, you know, stronger local zones of authority. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's those problems that really don't go away. No, definitely. I mean, ancient Rome, uh, like a monetary, um, system in place. It was you're on your own. I mean, they have the mints supply through the the empire and they were minted in the fashion of whoever was ruling at the time but it's kind of this haphazard system us and you know modern countries now um like we we have this whole banking regulation and currency we just went through our own financial crisis not too long ago and we're still talking about that today even when our president read the dodd frank regulations so <laughs> Yeah. There's there's a reason why these certain regulations are put in place um, because they're trying from the past. <laughs> um, and even if you go back farther, so just using that Cicero Catiline example again, something as big as like an as an economic uh, bubble bursting does have an effect on the wider populace. And in relation to the modern term, that was with the housing crisis. Yeah, and you see, like you had said, you know, even though the the most recent you know, economic bubble that burst for us wasn't super long ago. It had some really significant cultural impacts for us. And, you know, we read it in the headlines, like, <laughs> I don't know, like weekly where, you know, millennials are being blamed for killing mass production, like Applebee's and stuff like that. And it's, I'm sure that similar stresses happened in, uh, you know, economic stress like that, where, uh, you know, possibly mass produced items or stuff like that really seem to lose its value. Uh, and you end up turning to more locally produced things just because 
you know, these large structures are, are just kind of like burdensome to a populace to maintain. And it really rocks the, the faith and the, the trust and kind of the willingness to engage of, you know, people who are, are working and, and, you know, trying to make a living to see these things, you know, being upholded. You're just kind of like, really, I, I don't want to keep this structure afloat. I, I just want to do my own thing over here. Yeah. And look what's happening with the flood in Texas right now. So many th- thousands upon thousands of people lost everything they've ever owned uh, due to this flood. Um, partially due to this this freak weather hitting um, the the coast, and then also people were told in some regions that oh well you're going to be fine, but turns out they're not. Yeah, and be that with the past with the past too, um, where especially looking at like destruction layers of archaeological sites or burn layers where you know okay something definitely happened here. It's not attested in the written record. Um, but we know that, that there was like all buildings are part of the, this one section of the site was knocked down or was destroyed or uh, went up in flames. Um, and, and while we have the ancient record, we don't have ancient records for every account. We will have a surplus of modern records for Hurricane Harvey. Yeah, and it's interesting that you know natural disasters affect everyone, but. Uh, the people who are the most vulnerable tell a lot about the the way a culture is organized and the way ours is organized places you know the the people who you know work to really you know keep these socio-political and economic structures afloat it, it places them in great vulnerability um, and so, you know, we're, we're being able to see that unfolding in real time now, but, you know, there's going to be an archeological record for, you know, who got to rebuild and who didn't like which structures were abandoned and why. Yeah. And as you know, listeners know that history isn't history, and especially archeology span is not about what's there, but what's not there. Yeah. That's Two. very well said. You have, so you have so you have people's houses going back to the Hurricane Harvey example. Who, who I don't know. Texas. I mean, the Houston area. That's pretty new comparatively to the rest of the country. So, like in the grand scheme of the United States, houses will be destroyed and then rebuilt um, for what? They may be maybe a hundred years old um, or even older for some of the original settlements. Um, but that will that will affect the landscape of the city and that will change. Um, and, and as a result, you could have more affluent areas turn into poor and lower socioeconomic ones just off of this uh, weather that has been occurring. So let's say in, you know, 100 years, um, someone's doing a history of Houston and maybe they're looking at it from an architecture angle or landscape they'll see that oh there was this shift um but someone who's studying it will have the better look at it and someone who's growing up in that time they'll just be they'll just think oh that's what i've grown up with um i'm not really i don't have no need to question the environment around me yeah those kinds of uh i guess modes of information operate at such different scales uh that it's often difficult to perceive what's going on around you, you just kind of react to it. For sure. I think that if we 
if we're placing archaeology within, you know, anthropology or, or history, history slash classical studies, then it's, and this, I mean, it's, it, it's drawing, again, it's drawing from the, from the, the, the anthropological side of like what's happening now and living with the people living and being affected, um, natural disasters, um, but then it's also drawing off from the history too that will eventually come and it's the it's like this the hurricane will be a will be well it's already part of the history of Houston and the Gulf Coast right there so again it's it's drawing from both sectors um, of the academic fields trying to and if someone is if someone does want to look at the archaeology of what happened then to use all of those resources to make a valid conclusion yeah those those problems are going to uh be very complex and and like you had mentioned earlier they're going to be documented quite well but the material record perhaps will tell a different story than how it was documented so you know like you had just mentioned the 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 way that we put the story together as a whole, you know, draws from history, draws from the material record, draws from, you know, paleoclimate or even contemporary climate, stuff like that. So it's, it's just a big, very complex story. That's really cool. So we've talked about where archeology span is. Where were you? Cause you had, you had quite a summer uh, doing a lot of archeology. span Let's, let's hear a little bit about uh, what you were up to. Alrighty, sure thing. So I began my summer adventures by doing a one-day trip in Madrid and layover in the airport. And then I spent a month on the Portuguese coast excavating at a site called Troia. Uh, Troia's fame, claim to fame, rather, is being the largest fish salting distribution center in the Roman Empire. Uh, nice. Um, this is about 40 minutes south of Lisbon, and back in the day, it would have been uh, Troy would have been an island, but now it's part of this uh, sandy peninsula jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, after excavating there, I traveled around Portugal a little bit, then headed to Romania. In Romania, I attended the my the Halmiris dig for the third season in a row. We were excavating inside the fort. Oh, uh, Halmiris is a uh, front Roman frontier fort from the first to the century. Um, oh, and then Troia uh, operated from about the first to the fifth century. Um, so then, after Romania, traveled around to Prague and Paris, and then came back home. That is awesome. Uh, so you you've worked <laughs> in Romania for three straight years. Was your experience this last time? uh significantly different than your first i think so this time it was my second year being in a supervisory position i also led the pottery washing and selection process i definitely had a different perspective of how we how the site conducts from dealing with the local politics uh to seeing to having more in-depth discussions with the directors and talking, really getting involved and talking about like, what are we digging? Why are we digging it up? Um, and I found myself 
a dialogue with the directors too. Um, so I would ask them questions. They would uh, pitch thoughts to me, and this would this continued for the entire month. Liked engaging in that process. That sounds great. That was that was something that became a goal of mine. That really, I mean, it it, it has remained a goal of mine uh, once I found myself in that position. You know, to kind of maintain that and to you know have have myself be part of the dialogue and and uh, you know kind of shape the the dig. So that's that's awesome. Congrats! It's, it sounds like a really productive summer for you. Thanks. It was. How was your summer? Uh, it was it was great. Uh, it was the kind of busy that was like the good kind of busy, not like the overwhelming and soul crushing kind of busy. Mm-hmm. Um, it. <laughs> <laughs> I. I've been working really hard with Codify, which is a paperless uh, data management company. And we started off, it's it's Michael Ashley and I, we started off as a, a spinoff of the Center for Digital Archaeology. And he really worked, uh, he, he was really formative in, in developing, you know, both the Center for Digital Archaeology and Codify. He's the, he's the founder and president, but he brought me in and and as i've been kind of working and helping develop things uh we started off trying to take archaeology paperless and trying to take uh you know whatever your notes you're taking in the field to just do it paperless so that you can have the database ready by the end of the day rather than you know months Uh after the field season and so that was kind of where it started and now it's just kind of like any sort of paperwork we're working on it uh, so we've we've pivoted to kind of move outside archaeology. So it's been an interesting summer because I've I'm finding myself pulling from kind of all of the skill set of anthropology. So I've been working with um, Native American tribes, and I've been working with you know like engineering firms and stuff like that, uh, even biologists and just communicating with them and understanding their workflows and the kind of needs that they have. And then also, you know, really, really developing a relationship with the native American tribes um, is something that I never thought I would get a chance to do. It was always something that I was interested in doing, but um, having grown up in the Southeastern U S and spent most of my time as a CRM archeologist working in the Southeast, I didn't have as many opportunities to um, work directly with tribes, and it is a whole different ball game. And so it's been quite a learning curve for me, but it's it's been fun. Um, and then a couple weeks ago, I got to go uh, through Codify. I got to go um, help out as kind of tech support or was my original thing uh, on a dig in Hawaii, and it was it was a native Hawaiian site. Uh, it was a paw up on top of a mountain that overlooked the western side of Oahu, and uh, I had never That's been to Hawaii. So cool! <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. Um, and so I I was just kind of like up there, you know, hiking around and excavating, and and just every day just being like, man, somebody pinched me. I can't believe this is my job. Um, so it was it was cool. Seriously? There were a lot of great people involved. Uh, with that project and that's a that's a neat project that I'll, I'll I'm gonna try and do a podcast on uh, like a standalone podcast on some other time because I'm gonna remain in contact with uh, the the people involved there but yeah it's just been uh, a lot of work um, and 
until the Hawaii project came up, I thought, geez, is this going to be my first summer in like 10 or 11 years that I'm actually not going to do any field work? And it was kind of stressing me out. So I'm glad I got to at least get my hands dirty and dig a little bit. Good. That would have been so sad. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm finding myself kind of like more of a, uh, like a developer. Um, but, uh, when I say developer, I don't write any code. I've, I've never written any code. I, I know like just enough about coding to like turn them on or off, but not necessarily the syntax to actually write one and, and make it do what it needs to do. Uh, but I've been working more as kind of like a data architect or like engineer and just making sure that um, the kinds of information that needs to talk to each other are talking to each other and they go where they need to go. Um, so it's, it's all totally new. It's, it's, I don't know, in, in a lot of weird ways, it feels like I'm starting over, but also pulling from everything I've learned as an archeologist along the way. That's fun, man. That's, that's a wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty wild, but, uh, yeah. Well, anything else uh, you wanted yeah. to chat about on this one? Um, I don't know. I guess just is that if if anyone was confused on what we were talking about, I think that big point is that archaeology is a lot and does and is useful uh, for understanding the present uh, through viewing the ancient past or the modern past. Nice. Very well said. Uh, yeah, I, I totally Thanks. agree. <laughs> archaeology is everywhere. Uh, it's everywhere all the time. It's it's in the deep past. It's in the present. Uh, we're we're tackling very complex issues that are constantly changing. Uh, the more you get into it, uh, so it's 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 a neat field. It really can go anywhere, and that's something that uh you know I try to explore with this podcast. And I'm I'm happy to have you join me on it. It's it's always a pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having me on. It's uh, someone who loves archaeology as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, Colin, uh, one thing that I've been doing with uh, the podcast here lately is offering listeners a chance to um, reach out to the guests. So do you have um, places where people can reach out to you if it's on social media or, uh, you know, like email? Yeah, definitely. Um, please read always available for email. Um, my email, uh, we can put it in the a notes at the end, but it's uh, it'd be easier to look at the notes. It's omilanowski.co uh, at gmail.com. You can find me on, on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and I check those pretty regularly. I'm on Snapchat too, so you could find Awesome. Yeah, so those will be, be in the notes. Uh, if you don't see them on whatever podcast player you're using, uh, those will be on godigahole.com. And... Thanks again, Colin. It's it's always fun. Thanks, Chris, for having me on.